ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, here to introduce you to the third of three parts in a conversation between Michael Behe and Pat Flynn on the topic, Answering the Best Objections to Irreducible Complexity and Intelligent Design. This final section invites us to use our imaginations, or does it instead perhaps tell us about how some of the, quote, best objections to ID require a lot of imagination? Dr. Behe's host here once again is Pat Flynn from his Philosophy for the People podcast, and he'll be the first to speak as they begin here again. I want to say a few general things here. Um, one is that I think most naturalists really want to say that your sort of metaphysical picture should be sort of determined by uh, the best of what science has to offer, right? I mean, that's that's sort of what the naturalistic program is all about, that, that, that um, at the end of the day, uh, it should be like an idealized, completed science that will tell us about everything, even if they don't think we'll ever get that idealized, completed science, right? So then one wonders um, if that is your naturalistic paradigm and this is the, the best you have for the evolutionary account, what's, re what's really the motivation here? Sorry, I'm doing a little armchair psychology, but I, like, it seems like you're saying one thing, but, but it can't be that given the state of the actual science on this, which is not just under evidence, but as you argue in Darwin devolves, it's counter evidenced, right? It's counter evidenced. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I think, very interesting to think about right now again maybe maybe a naturalist doesn't say that maybe they say the whole reason i'm a naturalist is just a problem of evil that's it so so a, so a just so story is good enough for me right but that's a different debate if you're a naturalist saying i'm a naturalist because i love science and this is the way science is pushing um which many naturalists are at least that's what they want to say uh i think what you're presenting here is should should be very concerning to that, right? So I'm trying to situate different contexts here, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, I think a lot for many people, although certainly a lot of people in the world, so not everybody, but I think for a lot of people, the naturalism is takes priority. <laughs> and then, you know, since nature works by natural laws and stuff, you can fit a lot of stuff is consistent with naturalism. Question is, is everything consistent with naturalism or mm -hmm. the overarching conduct of, of nature consistent with, you know, a self-sufficient nature. And so when you start to probe the outer edges, then people start to put other things in, you know, in before just a straightforward interpretation of the, of the results. This was seen, you know, 80 years or so ago when the Big Bang Theory was first proposed, when it was proposed that the universe had a beginning. Uh, many listeners might not realize that before the 30s, most physicists thought that the universe was eternal and unchanging. And then with better astronomical observations, the redshifts of galaxies were seen, and that was interpreted as galaxies rapidly moving away from our own as if in the aftermath of a big explosion. And if you run that scenario back in your mind, then you get to a, a beginning or uh, of a universe. And, mm -hmm. and 
a lot of physicists hated that idea. And there are some statements by some physicists saying that a, a beginning of, to the universe is unscientific. That is, science needs, requires an eternal universe, and we won't tolerate it. And it's interesting along the way, even as late as 1989, the journal Nature, the most prominent journal in the world, ran an editorial with the interesting title, Down with the Big Bang, in which the editor said that the Big Bang Theory uh, gave aid and comfort to creationists and that it was philosophically unacceptable. Well, that's not a scientist talking. You know, best evidence looks like there was a beginning to the universe, whether that has theistic implications or not. Same way, best evidence says that the molecular machinery, the information in DNA uh, and so on found in the cell, that looks like there was an intelligent source for that, just on our experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to, to strongly resist that has a lot more to do, I think, with ph philosophical uh, considerations than scientific ones. Yeah, it's, it's the paradigm that's sort of determining the data rather than the data determining the paradigm, right? Um, right. Now, I think uh, a couple more uh, general points, objections that have come up, uh, even among uh, the more sophisticated critics. One's kind of, one is interesting. Uh, sometimes you hear it on a on a basic level, but it is it is a uh, concern iterate, uh, reiterated by Graham Oppie. It's like, well, who who designed the designer? And even Graham wants to say, look, if you've positing a designer that itself has this uh, sort of functional independence of parts, you haven't really given us a good explanation. And I want to say a couple of things about it, and then I want to get your thoughts. One is that whether we think of the argument in the way that you cast it or Planiga, uh, that doesn't mean it's not a good proximate explanation. It just might not be a good ultimate explanation, right? And in terms of ultimate explanation, I agree. Uh, that's why I hold to divine simplicity, right? <laughs> I think I think as an ultimate explanation, you need an absolutely simple being to just to uh, both physically and metaphysically. Uh, that that also happens to be intelligent, right, in an analogical sense of anything else. So, you know, where where I guess Oppie sees that as a as a strike against theism, I see it as the reason to endorse theism as the ultimate explanation. But I think on a on approximate level, that's actually not much of a concern because we don't always have to have that sort of deeper explanation of the more proximate explanation to reasonably accept the proximate explanation. Even as the philosophers, I would say, if reality is ultimately intelligible, we need a good principled ultimate explanation, at least. In, uh, uh, but that's fine. I, that doesn't bother me because, uh, yeah, I'm a classical theist who holds the divine simplicity. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a Catholic like yourself. And I've you know, I, I haven't actually read Thomas Aquinas, but I've, <laughs> but I, I've seen him on TV. You got the spark notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that thing, well, who designed a designer, you know, that, that doesn't work because if I showed you a mousetrap and said, look, this was designed and somebody says, yeah, but who designed the guy who, who made this mousetrap? I don't know. What, what do you mean? <laughs> but I, you know, the, yeah. We Does that mean that, you can't accept that somebody designed it? Right. That's, yeah, that's right. right. You can accept that somebody did. What's more, if you kind of push it back and say, say the guy, well, we know he's a human being and we, we saw him put it together. Well, that's great. But how does he have this ability to conceive of this 
you know, this apparatus and plan for it and, and uh, get in materials and, and do all the construction. Science hasn't the foggiest idea. You know, if you ask what, you know, ask science to explain a mind, what is a mind? They, you know, nobody has the foggiest idea how minds work. And so we don't even understand how we, how human beings uh, plan and think and reason and so on. But that does not mean we can't uh, inductively conclude that something was designed based on uh, our purposeful arrangement of parts and, and our experience. Um, just like uh, nobody, know, nobody knows, you know, how could a universe explode into being? Say, oh, I don't know. You know, we we've seen that when you know a dynamite explodes, things you know go all over the place. You know, away from the source of the explosion. Heck, now we see the galaxies and stars all going as if in the aftermath of a big explosion. We don't know what could cause a universe to explode into existence. Nonetheless, this pattern afterwards is what we see uh, after an explosion. And so therefore we are, as I say, inductively justified, I think, in, in reaching that conclusion. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So I think I've hit everything. I know I sent you a lot before this conversation because I wanted us to try to be patient and thorough. I'd like to, if you have time, Dr. B, take some questions from the audience, but is there anything that we discussed before that we haven't hit yet or that you want to mention or... In terms of oh, probably, but I can't think of what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, one thing I did want to mention is that in Graham Oppie's um, writing, um, is that he he uh, keeps saying that me uh, that I conclude that design and whenever we see irreducible complexity, then we reach a conclusion of design, and that's not quite right. In my book, I say that we conclude design when we see that parts are arranged for a purpose. That irreducible complexity is, is kind of a two-edged sword. Its, it's importance for the book is that it's a big problem for Darwinian evolution, which was the primary explanation for evolution uh, uh, that, I, that I addressed. Mm -hmm. But we make the positive conclusion of design based on, on the purposeful arrangement of parts. So, for example, if you took a bunch of rocks and you lined them up so that it says something like, you know, John 316, you know, you could have three rocks that are kind of like that. And you could have three more and they're starting to fill in that that phrase but it's it's uh sequential or it's cumulative you can add one more and get closer and one more and get closer so it's not necessarily irreducibly complex in the same way that a mouse trap is and graham oppie then uh, concentrates his fire on the idea of irreducible complexity i don't think he he uh, effectively addresses it but it's just another point where uh, a lot of folks get confused. Irreducible complexity is uh, a subset of design, 
And its, its use is, is that it's a two-edged sword. Number one, it's a problem for Darwin's theory. And number two, it you know, irreducibly complex systems themselves have purposeful arrangement of parts because they have a function and the parts are arranged to uh, perform that function, like in, right. say, a mousetrap. Yeah, that's that's importantly clarifying and, and always helpful. I guess before we turn to questions, uh, again, I just want to reiterate in case somebody's just hopping into this, they've never uh, read any of your work. Of course, we're going to mention your books here and encourage people to do so. And all your articles, you have so much out there. And I yeah. read I read a lot of objections, of course. I, I do try to do, do my homework on this stuff. I try to not make myself look like a fool, right? That's kind of my general policy. <laughs> if I'm going to go out and speak, and speak <laughs> about something, I want to try and make sure I've covered most of my bases. And even this is not my area of specialization, right? Yeah. Usually yeah, I'm more sure. in, I'm in metaphysics and stuff, but this is just, uh -huh. and remember when we first talked about it years ago, I described myself as sort of a friendly agnostic on the issue. And over uh -huh. time, I've just been yeah. become gradually convinced the more I, I've read on your work and the response and stuff like that. So you have to read your work, but they also have to understand that what you're doing is not questioning evolution as a whole. As you explain very carefully in your work, evolution is in a, a sort of an accordion term, right? It can mean more or less depending on who's issuing it. Uh, you're not questioning the the general narrative of, of common descent or the age of the universe. Right. You're just saying mm -hmm. it's the mechanism that right. I that I am criticizing yeah. right now. And yeah, uh, Darwin Darwin's claim to fame was not that he proposed evolution in the idea of organisms descending from other ones. It's that he thought he proposed a mechanism that didn't require any intelligence whatsoever, no direction, uh, as everybody had thought up until that time. So it's only the mechanism of evolution that intelligent design focuses on. Yeah, great. Okay, gentle listeners, a few minutes here. We'll, uh, uh, we have a few minutes left. If you guys don't mind, we'll uh, head to your questions. So send in whatever you have right now. There's a request here. As if we haven't uh, made Dr. Behe do enough work from a uh, listener, meow, meow, meow. He says, we'd love to see a dialogue here between Dr. Behe and Dr. Miller. I'd be happy to host it. I don't know. Have you yeah. and Dr. Miller been in touch much or? Uh... Uh, not in years now, but uh, I'd be happy to. I, I, I'm not quite sure what he's up to these days, uh, uh, but sure, I'd be, I'd be delighted. Great. Well, maybe we'll see if we can organize something like that and... Uh, uh, you guys have had exchanges before, obviously not just in writing, but, uh, well, sure. there's, there's, there's stuff on YouTube where maybe I forget at a conference or something. Yeah. YouTube, yeah. Right? We, we have done a number of appearances together and debates and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So people can check that out in the, uh, in the meantime. And, uh, okay. Another question from the same, uh, or I guess comment from the same user, uh, he says, in many ways, some of Behe's critics behave and think like some of the young earth creationist critics of evolution emotional outbursts and egregious failures to exercise principle of charity. I mean, look, to, to be fair, all, all, all sides are, are guilty of, of, yeah. of this at all times. You know, it's, it's not restricted to, to naturalists. It's, it's not restricted to even wider religious yeah. debates. It goes on yeah. in politics. It goes, everybody oftentimes fails to try and look seriously at the alternative position and try to yeah. in, in, interpret things as terribly as we can. And all I can sure. say to that is, is I try to do the best job I can here. And I know, Mike, yeah. you, you've certainly yeah. done an excellent job in your own work of that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all human beings. But if, if you're trying to make or if you're trying to convince other people, then you find it, it's best not to lose your temper or, or just denigrate the other side. If you really want to convince them, you've got to show them your, your arguments and tell them why it's, you think that it's true and why they should believe it's true. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Let's finish with this question. Then I want to um, 
talk about your books a little bit, where people can get them and any future projects you might be working on. Why can't, the question is, uh, the biological equivalent of mousetraps have other functions prior to the mousetrap function? So like a Sheldrake view of evolution might help uh, uh, help here. What do you think of, of that suggestion, Dr. Behe? Well, the, the first part of the... Uh, I'll keep it up. I'll keep it up there for you. Yep. Yeah, the first part of the uh, comment is a good one. That is, you know, suppose that, uh, and, and actually many people have suggested this. Well, suppose a, a irreducibly complex system first started out as something else, and then gradually it changed its function and then changed again and then changed and then, you know, you know, eventually ended up as a mousetrap. Well, you know, okay, tell me more. What did it start out as? And and uh, unless you fill in the details, it's it's one of these uh, essentially fuzzy uh, fuzzy ways to avoid the problem. But even worse, if it started off as something else, actually, Ken Miller uh, is is well known for saying that, well, maybe a mousetrap, you know, a tie clip. It's you know, a, be a tie beautiful clip. tie clip. Who wouldn't want a mousetrap as a tie clip? <laughs> if you had a tie clip, you could take away uh, the holding bar and have the mousetrap shut, essentially, and use it as a tie clip. And at, at, in a debate at the American Museum of Natural History 15 or so years ago, he wore that stupid tie, uh, mousetrap <laughs> tie clip to try yeah. to make this, this is point. where the discourse is at right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well okay and he also said well heck you could use the the base as a as a paperweight and you know so you could you can use the the holding bar as a as a toothpick to get stuff out of your teeth well okay um but uh it and each of those if the function was different natural selection would select them for that function, it would not select it as a precursor to a future mousetrap. If you wanted a uh, paperweight, you know, you could, you know, get here, we could oh, use nice this. <laughs> this is a paperweight. This isn't a precursor to a mousetrap. <laughs> if, if you, um, uh, you can have a globe as anything with mass can be a paperweight. So there's no reason to suppose a paperweight is going to be shaped in the way that a future mouse trap would have to be. Right. If you wanted a tie clip, I asked at that same place at the debate at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, I looked out into the audience after Ken had gotten up and I said, okay, how many guys here are wearing tie clips? And how many of them are shaped like Ken Miller's tie clip? And of course the answer was zero. I said, if you do have one that's shaped like that, you probably aren't here with a date. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Returning a zinger with a zinger, gotta love yeah. it. Yeah. So a, a real tie clip is shaped much simpler, much different, and it would not be uh, pre-adapted to be a mousetrap. Yeah. One thing I, I know, this is going to get me in probably a little bit of trouble, but I'm going to say anything. One thing I sort of noticed about these debates, um, and people can compare it with your books and some of these criticisms, is uh, certainly when it comes to the uh, details of the debate, 
uh, I find the most scientific detail uh, in your work. And I find very fuzzy sort of just so stories coming like this, 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 this mousetrap one. And, 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 and again, I think it's that, that it's, it only seems superficially plausible because it's fuzzy. And once you peer through the fog, you realize, no, it, 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 there has to be, it's about functional interdependence where the parts have to be properly shaped, fitted and functionally coordinated. Right. And once you understand that you realize, Oh yeah, that, that, that notion of a precursor as a tight, like, it's just ridiculous. It's just not plausible at all. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You have to remember there's kind of an asymmetric rhetorical task for the Darwin side and for the design side. Mm-hmm. The Darwin side makes wants to make you think that evolving complexity is easy, piece of cake. Whereas the design side wants to show you that it would be very, very difficult. So if you want to make it seem easy, then you want to think in the broadest possible terms and say, just imagine, you know, a fish kind of wiggling up on a shore and it, you know, moves itself and pretty soon, you know, its offspring will have little stubby legs and it is hoping, it's relying essentially on the listener to close his eyes and imagine a route to where they want you to go. But in nature, nobody's imagining a route because nature doesn't have a mind. Mm-hmm. And you're essentially uh, trying to get the listener to fill in the direction, have his mind or her mind move this system through space to to where they want to go. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in laboratory experiments where you don't have minds uh, guiding things, then the very, very most common results, even for improving systems or ones that become more fit is to lose things, lose pre-existing functioning genes or functioning machinery in the cell. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if you look for experiments that might show a new complex biochemical system being built by random mutation and selection, you don't find any such thing. Right. Yeah. This has been uh, really good, a lot of fun. I knew it would be, and I hope that uh, we've uh, we've we've mo- moved it forward yet again. Uh, <laughs> I always I always love having you on. I always love talking to you. And again, this is this is an area again not where my usual focus is, but I, I love just for some reason it really fascinates me, and uh, and I have to recommend your work very highly. So please, Doctor Behe, tell tell us about remind us of what books you have where people can get them. And uh, also you have so many articles out there uh, maybe point yeah. out a few that might be relevant to people concerning this as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have three, three essentially fundamental books. The first one is called Darwin's black box. I was 96. Second is called the edge of evolution published in 2007. The third one is called Darwin devolves in 2019. Those are the ones that lay out the argument, the reasoning for intelligent design and against Darwinian evolution. In the year 2020, at the urging of Discovery Institute, with which I'm familiar, or affiliated rather, I gathered together a collection of my articles, responses to critics, and into a single book. Uh, and it's called A Mouse Trap for Darwin. And it's it's pretty pretty big, 500 pages. Because it's good, been, it's very good though. Yeah, <laughs> I've been writing it for a long time. 
So if you want to know what the main critiques of ID have been and my responses to them, everything's gathered together in that one volume uh, for the interested person. All of these things, of course, are available on Amazon.com. Uh, all of them, I think, are available as, as paperbacks or Kindles or some still as hard hardcovers. Right. I will. Here's what I'm going to do. Uh, if not tonight, then tomorrow morning. What I'm going to do is both on the Philosophy for People website and my blog, which is called the Journal of Absolute Truth, because you know it's a self review. <laughs> it's a self reviewed journal, as you know, Dr. Hughes. But, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm not only going to link all those books there, but I'm going to compile all of our past episodes because we've got a lot now. Right. So so if people want to just go through the whole history, we've had uh, we've we've gone through the popular level objections. We've had at least two or three debates. Which were really good. Uh, we even went through objections from uh, from other Thomists, right, concerning philosophy mm -hmm. of nature and the compatibility there. So, I, to me, it's, I, I don't know what other angles we have left to cover here. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to put it all in one place, and I'll have the link in the in the YouTube afterwards, so people can find your books, uh, that that article compendium, which is really nice, and our our past episodes as well. So that'll that'll be there for people's resources. That, that'll yeah. be very convenient. Very convenient. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Behe. Really appreciate it. And uh, guys, please uh, do uh, check out Dr. Behe's work. Pick up his books. And if you enjoy this, please consider liking, sharing, and leaving your thoughts below. Let us know if uh, where you fall in this debate. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I, I always like to, to you know consider them in future episodes. So thank you very much. And with that, we wrap up what I would call a most fascinating conversation on answering the best objections to irreducible complexity and intelligent design. We thank Pat Flynn, host of the Philosophy for the People podcast, for his excellent interview with the Discovery Institute's Michael Behe, and also for granting us permission to use that audio here. We appreciate you, the listener, too, for your interest in this topic. Until next time, then, for ID of the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.